Welcome to Run This World. My name is Nicole DeBoom. I'm a former pro athlete turned entrepreneur. Each week, I'll bring you insights and inspiration from some of the world's greatest visionaries who will help you run your world in ways that you didn't even realize were possible. All in the framework of the amount of time it takes for the average person to run a 5K. That's 36 minutes and 38 seconds, give or take a mile. We often go long, so get ready. Thank you for spending some time with me today. Now let's get this workout started. Hey everyone, I hope you're having a fantastic day. Let's see, the sun is shining. I'm feeling that sort of, oh, I don't know, sugar and spice, pleasant muscle soreness from a couple great workouts I did this week. I'm feeling totally connected to my husband, Tim, and my daughter, Wilder. I'm on fire at Skirt Sports, totally inspired by what I do, which is basically to open myself to your amazing energy and then let your amazing energy feed me. So see how you're already helping me here? I, in general, am doing this thing called embracing my life. It's not all perfect, but I'm choosing to focus on the things that are awesome. You know, my daughter asked me today about the word tomorrow and what it meant. Yes, we're in that phase where she asks what things mean that are very hard to explain. (laughs) And I said, tomorrow's the future. And too many people live thinking about the future and then they forget to have fun right now and enjoy today. And she said, yeah, we need to enjoy today. Let's go do (laughs) Play-Doh. Of course, um, we had like three minutes to get ready for school, so I had to quickly figure out how to enjoy today putting her coat and boots on instead of playing Play-Doh. But my point is that we spend a lot of time planning our lives, and we forget how important it is to soak up each moment we are here alive and glowing on this earth. And isn't it great how... It takes a five-year-old to just sort of suck you right back into the moment and how easy and clear everything is to her. So everyone, let's just go do some Play-Doh, man. Um, All right, so speaking of enjoying life, each day in the moment, today's guest, Jenny Schuyler, is an expert on this topic Jenny is a licensed sex and relationship therapist. She helps people get in tune with their own sexuality and fully embrace themselves as healthy sexual beings. Her mission is to help people give themselves permission for pleasure. Jenny is one of those amazing people who tackles a topic that is often I'd say shrouded in secrecy and shame and confusion. And she does it with a non-judgmental open approach that you don't hear every day because most people are very secretive about sex and sexuality. Um, Jenny's background is both difficult and empowering. Her mother became addicted to drugs and and left her family when Jenny was very young. So she was raised by her father, who is a very positive, incredibly strong, powerful influence in her life. Um, She learned about sex when she was very young as well, as her father just sort of addressed it in a somewhat clinical way 
as uh, as sort of a fact of life whenever things came up. So there was never any shame or secrecy around the topic for her. And as Jenny got older, she sort of became the, I don't know, like de facto Dr. Ruth of her friends. I think that's how she phrases it. They would come to her with questions. It's it's really interesting. So eventually she found her way into the profession she's in and decided to become a licensed therapist. Today, Jenny is the founder of the Intimacy Institute in Boulder. If you're local, you can also come out to the Skirt Sports Women Run the World event on Tuesday, November 14th, because Jenny is not only one of our speakers, she's leading the strength workout beforehand. It's one of the topics we touch on today is exercise and sexuality, as they are sort of tied together. Um, and I'll be honest, I was so excited to have Jenny on the show, but I swear I, I felt like I kept stumbling over my questions because as much as I thought it would be, it was not as easy for me to ask direct questions about sex and sexuality as I thought it would be. So forgive me if you hear some stumbling. And one final note, if you are not comfortable listening to this conversation about sex and sexuality in front of other people, like your kids or your boss or in your workplace, et cetera, then uh, please be sure to listen to this one when you're in a good place to do so. Okay, then let's get started. I hope you're ready for a good one. So Jenny, welcome to the show. Thank you, Nicole. <laughs> I, uh, you know, I just wanted to kind of start right off the bat. I want to hear in your words, what do you do for a living? I'm a sex and relationship therapist. I do many things for a living, but that entails mostly therapy for couples and individuals, helping them with everything under the sun related to their sexuality. So it could be sexual functioning, it could be sexual pleasure, it could be a desire discrepancy between couples, it could be finding their own sexuality and what that even means as a sexual identity, um, sexual orientation, gender, unconventional turn-ons, navigating those with a spouse or a partner. Um, Lots of people will come in with general relationship concerns too, with like a little piece around sexuality, like for instance an affair that they're trying to heal from, or an affair they're trying to extract from. Um, So those are the main things we see in the office, but then my other job duties in terms of sex and relationship therapy are doing talks. I love doing talks because the more people that can hear the message, which is permission for pleasure, and how that emerges is important to me in terms of why I do this work. So talks are important. I love to do couples workshops and retreats and other kinds of, you know, more group kinds of things. So try to do it all it's and like, write. <laughs> I feel like you have your therapist voice on. <laughs> like we're in a therapy session right now. You know, you hit on, I just had to write down a few of these phrases because I didn't have some of these things on my list to talk about, but things like desire discrepancy, mm-hmm. I hadn't thought of it that way, but I mean, that just seems so natural. Like in any relationship you're in at certain times, sometimes for years, one partner seems a little more interested than the other, and then it can switch. And un- uh, unconventional interests, this is an interesting, like I'm sure people listening are like, I want to know what those are. And uh, affairs, like these are these are big topics, but I love mm-hmm. like, I think maybe we should come back to some of these. Sure. We're going to get back to some of these cool topics. I love your 
I love your message of permission for pleasure. Um, Thank you. I want to ask you, maybe we should define that. Sure. Do it. Well, let me back up and say that most people get poor sex education in terms of we typically get reproduction, we'll get anatomy, sometimes we get the STD, don't don't get the STDs, these are what they are, don't get them. This is pregnancy, don't get that either. <laughs> Basically, that. <laughs> all the things around sex don't do, right. and yet you're teaching these kids, all of us as kids, you're teaching this at a time when their hormones are coming online, and they're totally crazy and totally curious about sex. And the things we don't teach are pleasure, intimacy, consent. How do you navigate consent and arousal when they're happening at the same time? And consent is kind of murky, but arousal is kind of high. So those are the conversations we're not having with our kids. And then you become an adult. We expect this on-the-job training of like, oh, we're going to have these happy, healthy sex lives that we never got taught how to have. And one of the big things that is missing from the conversation is pleasure. So we think sex is this big performance. We have to do it like Hollywood. Here's the script. Here's how you execute it. And we miss this whole component of, you know what, what if it didn't have to be intercourse? What if it didn't have to end in an orgasm? What if we just shared our bodies with consent for the sake of pleasure? And that's like one of these concepts that's mind-blowing to couples when we actually point it out that way. And so the idea is giving ourselves and each other permission for pleasure because we tend to get into these relationships and go, oh, pleasure, like what? What is that? I deserve that. Totally. Because it's like, especially people listening here, are there's a lot of athletes, active people, people who are training for their first 5K or whatever. Mm -hmm. There's a finish line. We're trying to hit a finish line, right? And that's so important when you're an athlete. Absolutely. I mean, we're a goal-oriented society. And that is important for our goals. goals in sex. Like, that makes sense. You would naturally think we've got to get to the finish line every single time. Right, but and that actually is sabotage. Record breaking. <laughs> right, both of us having an orgasm at the same time. That's exactly how I draw it out for couples. But that's really a disservice, actually. So wait, that's like winning the World Series. That's the you know the ultimate that everybody thinks they have to get to. Yes. Yeah. This is so. This is um, what I want to do actually. Before we dig into some of these topics, is I'm sure people are listening and saying. How did Jenny Schuyler get into this field? And I think it might be important to share a little bit of your background and some of the defining moments that helped you realize this was the path for me and I want to help people figure out their their pleasure, you know, opportunities. Yeah. We were talking about this on our walk together. Uh-huh. We were. <laughs> um, so there's two sides of any sword, right? You've got your light and your dark. My light side is really my dad. Grew up with dad as a single parent, and he was a medical doctor, is a medical doctor, still is. So he taught me everything under the sun that I wanted to learn about or that he wanted me to know about, I should say, related to this world, to include sexuality. So it wasn't a taboo subject. It wasn't necessarily highlighted and and standing out, but it was more that it was just part of the everyday conversation. So it was like really practical. It was just like black and white. This is what happens. This is practical. This is your anatomy from a young age. It was clinical. You know, as I got a little older, here are some books and videos, any conversations or questions you might have. Um, He was really open. You know, he had a whole bookshelf of all topics, again, under the sun, to include sexuality. So 
I would have friends come over and be like, oh, you have the joy of sex in your library. And like, how old were you when that was happening? Um, I mean, the joy of sex was always there since before I was born, probably. Oh I love it. <laughs> <laughs> did it, when did I notice it? That was probably 13. Got it. Okay. And then friends would come over and we'd read through it. And it was just this like revolutionary thing and learn a lot of things actually from the joy of sex. And then my friends, I, we all started to realize I was the home that had this knowledge. I was the library. I was the knowledge base. So I started to just, because of that, become the Dr. Ruth of my friends in a way and enjoyed that. I really enjoyed that, oh, I had something to offer that was really valuable and yet really taboo in other people's homes. Fast forward a little bit, I went to college and at the time, Eve Ensler, who wrote the Vagina Monologues, was allowing your own monologue to be written and produced in the show. Now I think it's only her script, but at the time I think two or three um, of your own original pieces could be in in the production. So I wrote a piece, I auditioned, I got in, and my piece was on female pleasure. And you were like 20? Somewhere around there? Yeah, 20, 21, 20 turning 21, something like that. So, I mean, a lot of women listening probably didn't even have much of a grip on their, on their, you know, sexual pleasure at that age. So this is really like big time. That's true. I guess if I actually back up in time, I found my clitoris when I was five years old through my little best friend who actually showed it to me via the bathtub faucet. (laughs) Is that so crazy, thinking back on it? I mean, probably many of us did. We just didn't know what it was. Right. Or or what it meant or how to continue to use it. (laughs) Right. But then I had a book. Now fast forward a few more years. Then my dad, one of the books he gave me talked about masturbation for both boys and girls. And so when I read about that in the book, I realized, oh, that's what I was doing. But then I also read about in the book and went, oh, I guess that's okay and normal. I never felt any shame about it. So it continued to be a practice. So from early on, it was never a place of shame or taboo. It was, oh, I guess this is part of life. So I have to stop, but where does this shame come from? I think it's that's a multifaceted answer. I think part of it comes from silence. When we don't say anything, we fill in the blanks usually with a story that's worse than it should be, right? Like if you have a spouse and they're out for the night and they don't tell you, usually it's, well, mm-hmm. I shouldn't say usually, it's probably more innocuous than what your imagination would right. think it to be. Yep. So kids are the same way. You know, you fill in the blanks with, well... I guess this is a terrible, horrible thing, right? They make up a story. Then you have all the other social scripts that I was referring to earlier. You have society that says sex has to be this performance and you have to get to this orgasm and you have to get it it together. And so there's that pressure in terms of social scripts. Religion has a lot of negative things Mm. to say usually about sexuality and certainly masturbation. And then our messages from our family come down, you know, through the lineage you know, generation after right. generation, and usually those are not positive messages. So let's just, uh, I'm sorry to, but a lot of people listening also have young kids. Yeah. And they may not be able to remember back to their own, you know, uh, experience, but they want to know how do I tackle these topics when I see my kid having fun with his penis. And maybe it's in his bedroom or maybe it's outside in the front yard. Like, mm-hmm. How do I handle that in a way that's not going to scar him from life for thinking that it's a bad thing to do? You know, these mm-hmm. are like important questions. So that shame, like the way you handle those moments 
could affect the way your child views sex and their own sexuality, right? Completely. So do you have recommendations for this? Like, oh. tell me some stories here. <laughs> this is my favorite topic. Talk oh, about, really? yes. Oh, awesome. Having, teaching parents how to help them grow sexually healthy children. That is my absolute favorite topic. I could do workshops and talks on this until the cows come home. I love it. Because I think it's essential in terms of changing the next generation and changing society. And I can tell you what I do with my three-year-old and my one-year-old. They're both boys. Okay. And my three-year-old, first of all, my three-year-old knows all his anatomy. He knows he has a penis. He knows he has testicles. Sometimes he looks in the mirror and he goes, Mommy, my testicles are big or my testicles are, you know, fill in the blank. And I'm like, <laughs> I'm just, it's a proud moment of like, look at your vocabulary. I'm so proud of you. <laughs> And my one-year-old, my one-year-old is very verbal too. And, you know, when he watches dad pee in the toilet, you know, he goes, penis. You know, he knows. That, <laughs> yes. So they know their anatomy. It's not the only anatomy they know. Right, right, of course. But it's just, it's a part of their anatomy. Right, it's, it's important. it's important then for them to know the actual words. Yes. Okay. I very much think so. I very much think so because, one, it gives them, you know, knowledge is power. Two, they know there's a dialogue between parent and child and Basically, that's also helps prevent childhood sexual abuse from any outside perpetrators because perpetrators look for kids they can groom. Kids that are not having dialogues about their sexuality with their parents are easier to groom than kids who are having close contact with their parents, close set of eyes, don't keep secrets, etc. Um, going into another topic now, you might want to even interview her. She's wonderful, Feather Brookhauer. But that aside... I think it's important for kids to have their anatomy. And following up on my three-year-old, he loves his penis. And there are times when he'll love his penis on <laughs> the couch in the living room or the floor or the rug in the living room. And I just easily say, that's totally fine, but please have your penis time in your room or the bathroom. And now he, he closes the door and sometimes I'll knock and I'll be like, what are you doing in there? He's like, I'm having penis time. Like, okay. <laughs> great oh my gosh oh you guys um good thing in the intro i suggested that you may want to make sure you're listening to this maybe not in a work environment or a place where <laughs> you know you might you might be flagged for hearing a lot of anatomy words um but i love that i love it you've given him a positive way to frame what he's doing and not make mm -hmm. him feel like it's embarrassing or he has to be in his room because it has to be a secret thing that he has to hide from you right like what i'm worried about is my daughter trying to hide what she's doing in any case in any situation you know yeah and uh, i think this is the start of like a really strong open door for communication yeah i'm trying to show that the pleasure is okay and the privacy is important, and, and differentiate between privacy and secrecy, which is also important for couples, by the way. But privacy is totally fine, and that's an activity to do in private. You don't have to keep it secret. It doesn't have to be in the shame category. It's just that that's a private place to do your pleasure. So let's say some parents haven't really talked to their kids much at all, and their kids are maybe five, six, seven. Mm -hmm. How do you suggest, if you didn't grow up having sort of an open dialogue like you're talking about, mm -hmm. how do they start broaching the subject? Do they sit down with them and just make it a big deal, or do you just integrate it? I totally say integrate it. Small, bite-sized pieces over the lifespan. Start right now if you haven't started before even if your kids are 19 just start and ask them questions like hey how's it going at 
college you know are you meeting people you know is it fun you know how do you navigate certain terrains around consent or you know you can have those conversations even if your kids are much older certainly if you're younger you have a lot more space to kind of groom them the way you want to in terms of what kind of being you want them to be in the world um but bite-sized pieces through the lifespan take advantage of every teachable moment you can because kids remember all i ask all my clients tell me about sexuality growing up and they all remember either absolute silence or oh i remember that one big awkward talk when i was 13 and i was in the car or when i was 17 and i was already having sex for a few years and mom finally gave me condoms (laughs) like kids remember people remember so it's unusual or maybe not but it seems unusual that someone who's in my generation aka you would have this like more close relationship with your dad regarding this topic like a lot of people learn about sex from their mom or their same uh, gender parent right Mm -hmm. so you know what happened to your mom like was she out of the picture early is she is she alive she's alive barely um so my mom was addicted to cocaine very early in my life and basically by the time i was two she was in rehab they were divorced dad got custody and that continued a trajectory of in and out of rehab with her cocaine habit for a long time if you kind of look underneath the cocaine habit there's a lot of this is the dark side of the sword I was talking about underneath it was a lot of um, father-daughter incest that she had to endure hence you know we have different coping skills some people can do therapy heal be resilient in the world others don't have that kind of resilience my mom is not the most resilient person went to cocaine and really has never stopped and basically Part of that painful journey for her is that she has this very dark relationship with her own sexuality, which is non-existent to to very dirty and shameful, taboo, um, not filled with pleasure, filled with a lot of pain, filled with a lot of trauma. And watching her navigate that, um, either with herself or with, you know, partner after partner that never treated her well, that was part of my commitment in terms of I want to help women reclaim their power, be in their pleasure, um, navigate a really healthy relationship around sexuality. And at first when I got into the field, all I wanted to do was work with women who had trauma or who were survivors of sexual assault or incest. Um, after school and sort of broadening my business, I realized I need to help more than just them who are going to change society as a whole. We got to help everyone. We got to have, you know, like I said, my passion is teaching parents because if we can teach kids in the next generation to be different in their sexuality with themselves and other people, then this stuff doesn't happen anymore. So it's not just helping women reclaim their power and their sexuality; it's helping society change. This is, I mean, it's big and heavy stuff. I mean. Uh, it's I can't relate to it and I just feel horrible that you had to go through this um at what age I mean it's it it also seems like there's some emotional detachment I mean at you're older now you're not a little kid anymore mm-hmm. maybe that's how you've 
had to cope with your relationship with your mom. Oh, of course. Yeah. Of course. I mean, disassociation growing up in terms of various aspects of the trauma was my best friend. I mean, how did you, how old were you when you found out like what your mom had gone through and that she was a drug addict and she was a victim of incest? The incest piece I learned when she was having, she was in the middle of some sort of drug drug episode. I was 10. I remember it vividly when she was sitting on this couch and sort of talking about it to me and I'm thinking like, whoa. She was talking to you about it. She was talking to me about it. Wow. I don't think she was talking to me from a place of consciousness or sobriety. She was talking to me from a place of being absolutely high. I didn't really realize she was high um, when I visited her. I would visit her maybe once a month or every few months if she was not in a rehab. In the very beginning, Mm -hmm. it was supervised visits. Later, it didn't have to be supervised. Um, But looking back on how she was in her body, um, I realized, oh, she was high every single time. I just didn't even, I couldn't track that as a kid because I just didn't realize. That was my normal. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, there's lots of parts of that that are live in sort of that disassociated Pandora's box. And Mm -hmm. I've done a lot of therapy of all kinds. (laughs) And I consider myself pretty resilient. You are. All things considered. Well, and you've been able to somehow take that not so positive part of your past experience and turn it into something that can help others. And I know that sounds weird, but you, you just said that that was a big part of your impetus to move forward mm-hmm. to help people who've been through tough things. Yeah. And it obviously evolved into this bigger world of like empowering women in general and men mm-hmm. too, I think, right? Yeah, yeah but there's definitely this, uh, it's, yeah. Okay, well let's let's keep talking here about some sex. Okay, All right, let's just talk about <laughs> sex. Um, let's go into some of these topics that we brought up. I guess one of the big things is uh, sex after kids. Mm-hmm. I just read an article that you wrote on this, and uh, it was really cool. It, it, there were a few uh, little catchphrases that you mentioned. This mm-hmm. word desire, right? Mm-hmm. That like, where did it go? You know, mm-hmm. where what it you, we used to have it when we got married and you mm-hmm. know the honeymoon is probably called the honeymoon phase for a reason mm-hmm. and then do those butterflies come back and especially after kids like how do you regain that I don't know that feeling I don't think the butterflies come back that's the sad reality of life those butterflies are associated with NRE that new relationship energy it's really exciting that's, that's in so the depressing. beginning. I know it's kind of. De- I know, I know. <laughs> Which is why people cheat and why people get divorced and move on. I mean, it is really sad. Yeah. It is really sad. Well, and I can understand the you know people wanting to be like a serial marrier. You know, mm-hmm. there's a lot of people who don't get married ten times, but some people do. Mm-hmm. They just go from relationship to relationship because it's like a drug, right? Yeah. You're sort of addicted to that feeling. Yeah. So, but what if, you know, I've been married almost 21 years. So what if you stick it out? Like, how do you, how do you keep your sex life going strong as the years tick by? Well, let me come back to those butterflies because yes, it may be sad that you don't experience them directly related to your spouse. However, I experience them with the birth of each of my babies. 
I experience it after an awesome workout or if I win a competition or something like that. Like there's other places in life where I experience it and then taking that energy, that's what passion is. You just take that energy that you find in the outer, outer world and you infuse it into your own life where you want to. So I just take it, make it a contagious thing and infuse it into my sex life or encourage clients to do the same so it doesn't mean that the butterflies you have to depend on your partner for the butterflies go out into the world climb a mountain grab those butterflies for yourself and then bring it home is sort of my mantra with that um i love that and what's really cool is you were actually doing this motion of (laughs) (laughs) what was i doing have you take the butterflies I don't know, maybe I yeah, grabbed the butterflies. And, and you kind of infused them right down where you wanted them. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I was wondering what you were doing there. <laughs> I know. Well, we're doing a little video while we go here. Um, so, so yeah, let's talk about that. And let's go into the whole after kids thing. Okay. So is your body different? Is your physiology different? For some women, absolutely. Mine, my, I'm not even five feet tall so both my pregnancies i shot out like a torpedo just to because i have limited real estate right and it also shifted my pelvic floor in a big way so intercourse was super painful and my desire dropped into the toilet and even after all the training i had i didn't realize that i would have a low sex drive I thought, oh, I'm going to be super horny during my pregnancies. I'm so excited. And I was shocked to see that my sex drive went into the toilet. Um, That's okay because I'm married to a sex therapist. We talk about it. We realize this is not the end of our erotic life. I know great pelvic floor physical therapists who helped me with my pelvic floor. You know, I, I reset after pregnancy. And same thing happened in my second pregnancy, by the way. So t- let's talk about that for a minute, because sure. I thought the pelvic floor issues had more to do with, like, you had to pee all the time. That can be part of it. I mean, everything shifts down there. So uh, how do you rebuild it? Some women it? it? some women, it just resets on their own with time, and a lot of women need pelvic floor physical therapy. Oh, wow. So you can actually go visit pelvic floor specialists. People could Google oh, yeah. pelvic floor specialists and it would pull some people up near them. Yeah, it's a physical therapist who specializes in the pelvic okay. floor interesting and they're great i the one i love that i refer my clients to i went to during pregnancy and after a lot of women will experience pain with intercourse after they have their babies and if it doesn't get better pelvic floor physical therapy is really good to just relax all the muscles in the pelvic floor and kind of press that reset what kind of exercise do you do with a pelvic floor? I mean, I'm imagining like i don't even know what i'm imagining are you just like doing a ton of kegels um, actually, probably the opposite. The kegels are the constriction, and you're holding tight. Oh. The idea here is to relax it. So it actually is a manual therapy where she'll okay. go in to the va- into the vagina and press on certain muscles. Okay. To and then with you have to help out with breath and just really breathe into. So you're it's sort of like a massage, not an erotic massage, not even a you know relaxing massage, but more of sort of a therapeutic intentional massage to really relax all the muscles on the pelvic floor so they reset well and the thing is i can imagine like husbands hearing this and being like i'll be your pelvic floor massage therapist you know jokes about it i actually immediately started doing kegels as soon as we mentioned the word because i find that that is a trigger word for us women as soon as someone says it everybody's looking around going do they know i'm doing kegels right now it's happening right (laughs) it's good it's good to do kegels (laughs) and by the way my husband was my massage therapist for that oh he came he 
came to the to the sessions the the pelvic floor physical therapist taught him what to do and he watched he practiced with her and then before we would have intercourse he would definitely press on my pel- on the inside and again this was not arousing this was really just therapeutic to help my muscles relax mm-hmm. and then we would engage in erotic encounters so wow. it was it was a really important step um, as a team to kind of help my pelvic floor relax to where I wanted it to be that's a I mean that's pretty cool mm-hmm. I'm gonna recommend then if you gotta go bring your husband mm-hmm. if you're comfortable right with right um, so I guess one of the things like as you build up you're you get pregnant say you want to get pregnant right so sex starts to change meaning during that time mm-hmm. and I do remember this it, it gets tough for your husband to want to perform at the given time that he needs to perform, right? Because you're saying now you have to do it on cue. Right. So I'm sure you deal with this all the time. And to me, like, that might set the tone for what happens after baby, too. Because you're trying to get pregnant. Sex has become something different. You get pregnant. Then sex is like, I don't know how, you know, can we still do it? And you kind of learn, yes, of course you can. But mm-hmm. this still might feel weird to some people. I don't know. Um, and then afterward, what happens is now you have a baby so you're exhausted Mm -hmm. your vagina might hurt or things feel different right Mm -hmm. and um you've got to plan it into busy schedules so like this planning thing so i feel like the warm-up for the whole planning thing for sex starts when you're trying to get pregnant so i don't know is there any way to like break that cycle yes i mean let's just start with even if you notice the words you used okay what did i perform use? he oh. has to perform Gosh. on cue or when you're ovulating and we're back into that but it's so into, we just go to those <laughs> words but what how do you like what's the alternative what do you how do you reframe that i say let's have some pleasure and fun when you're ovulating don't make it a performance. It may take a little extra time, but if you keep it fun and you keep the pressure out, and performance is always pressure. It's the finish line thing. Yeah. All right. Okay. Yes. Does he need to ejaculate inside of a woman or his wife if he wants to impregnate her? Yes. But if it's framed as a performance and it's framed as pressure, it takes out the fun and, and, you know, there's more anxiety related to it and, and that, yeah, that sets the tone. Yep, you're right. So then after baby, like how, when you know you've got windows of time or you might be tired and how do you navigate all that and keep the relationship healthy? Well, lots of pieces there. <laughs> I know. One is I, I think the most important piece is keeping the relationship healthy outside of the bedroom so that you don't feel like strangers awkwardly trying to navigate each other's bodies in the bedroom. So everything you can do to respect each other, flirt with each other, keep that affectional contact alive with each other. You know, don't be strangers to affection. A lot of women will be strangers to affection because they're worried that that will be an invitation into sex. And so then they become really icy and distant from their spouses and or their partners. And and now the relationship has no affection and no touch. And it becomes you know, pretty touchless for both partners and neither partner actually wants that. So I really say, you know, delineate your erotic encounters and you might have to plan them, but if you know when those are, then the rest of your life, the rest of the week, you can have lots of affection. You can flirt. I call these the desired deposits. Have respect, respectful, fun conversation. You know, flirt, touch, 
kiss because you know none of that has to lead to an erotic encounter. The erotic encounters are separate. And when you think about the erotic encounter, again, think about it without the performance. If it's just 15 minutes of pleasure, what are you capable of in those 15 minutes? Maybe you hop in the shower and it's a sensual, fun time. Maybe it's mutual masturbation. Maybe it's oral sex. Maybe it is intercourse. Maybe it's just laying together naked because that's all the energy you have to do. You know, like it just, you have to gauge what you're capable of. But if you don't frame it as we have to engage in this Hollywood script to perform, to get to intercourse, to get to orgasm, then you take all the pressure out of it. And now you have this wide world of many flavors of erotic juiciness that you can choose from without saying, okay, have to get to some destination. Well, and I think that's an important conversation to have with your spouse too, because if you've set a pattern, I think a lot of couples I know, and we have definitely fallen into this, um, you basically have sex or you don't have any right right so this is this like whole new almost like a really long lead up you know where you're mm-hmm. just constantly triggering those beautiful what you said desire deposits mm-hmm. right so that by the time you finally or when you finally can have your erotic encounter which mm-hmm. i do love that phrase um it's probably more fulfilling completely and some women you know you come back to pregnancy one you know, the doctor says, don't have intercourse for, uh, what is it, six to eight weeks. Mm -hmm. And two, I can't tell you how many women it's painful for, sometimes up to a year after Mm -hmm. they have their baby. And so the last thing you want to do is be forcing intercourse on a painful vagina. So how do you then keep building erotically together, even if intercourse is not on the table, which means you have to expand your palette of flavors mm-hmm. it means you have to expand your definition to be more you know this erotic juiciness that may or may not include orgasm and i find that's actually more vulnerable i mean talk about mutual masturbation that's the most vulnerable activity two people can do together and yet lots of couples don't want to do it because it may feel awkward for instance i know and that's just so weird like you live your you have a life with this person you've been with for it can be you know decades mm-hmm. And that is one thing you just don't feel like you can do together. Yeah. Well, it's always been in either private or secret. Right. We come back to masturbation where we learn it. Usually it's actually not private, it's secret. Oh, that's a good differentiator. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So now all of a sudden I've had this activity that's lived in secret. And yes, I have this sense that most people in society do it, but it's my secret thing with myself. How am I going to show my partner what I do? And then how do I also show my partner it with the intention of intimacy and not being on stage? Right. Because we're showing each other, we're being in the same space with this mutual masturbation, but we don't also don't want to have this effect like here we are on stage watching each other, but we are watching each other right. and we are sharing this intimate encounter. So we really want it to be this intimate, vulnerable, beautiful encounter that doesn't feel like the spotlight's on us and here we are doing this, you know, tango on stage kind of thing. Right. And for a lot of people they didn't at five years old figure out how to masturbate and haven't been comfortable and open with that process their entire life. So to now at 40 or 50 or whatever, suddenly want to unveil this to somebody, anybody, that's a big deal. It's a big deal. I can understand why there'd be anxiety. Mm -hmm. 
people, um, if people want to come visit you, we're going to come back to this again. <laughs> do you practice only in person or do you ever do like virtual consults? We do Skype or FaceTime. We do virtual. Okay. Um, but only if somebody lives somewhere where there is not an accessible sex therapist for them. If I get oh, phone okay. calls from, you know, somewhere in Massachusetts, for instance, there are so many wonderful practitioners out there. I'll just say, let me tell you the names. But sometimes somebody is in Montana or they're in somewhere in Colorado that's not near a big city, mm-hmm. then I'm open to doing virtual. Okay, great. And if not, you're in Boulder, so we're going to have all your contact info in there. You might pick up some clients. Do you actually have room to pick up clients? We have a team of four people. <laughs> so yes, somebody on the team can fit someone in. <laughs> and it's called the Intimacy Institute, which I love. Yeah, you cover Thank everything. You. Um, let's move on to talking now about exercise and sex drive. You're an athlete. Yes. You've always been an athlete of sorts, and now you're pretty heavy and awesome into CrossFit. I saw some cool shots of you <laughs> with your little family. Um, how? What has your experience been with sports, athletics, and how? what effect does that have on our bodies sexually and our emotions? Well... So lots of questions in there. Which one should I know, answer first? I don't know. <laughs> Let's just talk about exercise and sex. Exercise and sex. I'm a big fan of it. Again, if you use the outer world to generate those butterflies that we were talking about before, mm-hmm. and for me, I love exercise because again, I get the all the butterflies. I get the dopamine and the endorphins, and I feel good in my body, not just from a hormone place, but also from a confidence place. Um, feeling strong and functional in my body makes me feel good and confident in the world. Again, all that translates to the bedroom because how you feel about yourself is the first and foremost step about sexuality. You got to feel good in this body that we inhabit, right? And confidence is the sexiest thing. Whatever body you inhabit, whether it's super fit or not, whether it's big or small or lean or long or whatever your body shape is, if you are confident in that body, that is by far the most attractive thing. Everybody usually says that. So you want to do things that make you feel confident in that body. For me, that's exercise. But again, I've been an athlete my whole life. I've been drawn to athletics because I don't know why. I think I was just naturally drawn to them. They were fun. Got into the community part of athletics you know I was always on different teams and Mm -hmm. made friends and it was just sort of this lifelong thing and you became a triathlete at some point I did become a triathlete (laughs) (laughs) but you said you're not running as much now right I'm not I have I think it's a genetic arthritis in my knee and so the more I run on it the more it sort of exasperates it I actually had knee surgery when I was 25 to remove some of the cartilage yep so running is tricky for me I'm not able to do it in the same way for long distances so it kind of I don't want to say destroyed my triathlon career but it it paused it yeah but you know you found other things and I mean that's the point yeah. with anything and probably with sex yeah. too when you yeah. when something's not working or whatever it's limitless the things that you can do completely I mean I have a few clients who have you know previously who for instance are in wheelchairs they don't have any sensation from the waist down intercourse is off limits for them there's just not an ability to have it so getting creative with what you can do in the bedroom toys hands fingers swings you know just getting creative with again your erotic encounter is really important 
You know, I think it might help some people. You mentioned unconventional interests. I think um, there's probably a lot of people out there who have unconventional interests. I don't even know what's the difference, conventional, unconventional, but they might feel really alone out there, uh-huh. you know? So if somebody's feeling like a desire that they think might toe the line of like being acceptable or I don't know the mm-hmm. right term, like what do you suggest for them to sort of break through that? Is there a line between like dangerous and safe or, you know, what? where's the... Where's that line? And how can they move themselves into a place of feeling good about it? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. Most people with an unconventional interest or an unconventional turn-on are usually okay with it until they're in a relationship where the other person is not okay with it. Got it. Now we're navigating terrain where the turn-ons are completely opposed to each other. So again, if you're single, no big deal. If you're in a partnership... It can be a struggle. Not always. There are so many ways to meet people with similar turn-ons online. I mean, now that we have this online world, one, you can learn all about your particular unconventional turn-on and learn there's usually a relatively sizable community um, out there for you. Two, there's definitely dating websites so you can find somebody with something similar or somebody accepting of it. So we live in a world, at least online, that allows some of that secrecy and shame to kind of melt away just because we know we're not alone. True, and there's a little more comfort in the fact that you could be a little bit more anonymous until you decide not to be. Yeah. So you don't have to totally put yourself out there and be vulnerable with it. Yeah. And and potentially face shame or ridicule. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's huge. Um, Let's talk a little bit then about as we age, mm-hmm. how sex drive changes. And when we think we're going crazy, are we really going <laughs> crazy? Or, you know, what's the what's the common path? Is there one? No. <laughs> no, there's so many myths around this, especially with menopause. Mm-hmm. Um, basically, testosterone is the predominating hormone for our sex drive. And I say that because it's not the only thing that contributes to our sex drive, but it's a huge hormonal help. In general, women don't have a lot of testosterone, so we never had a lot of hormonal help. If we're in a new relationship, okay, we have hormonal help. Remember all those new butterflies. Um, If we're getting that dopamine or endorphin rush from exercise and we bring it home, we have a little hormonal help. If we're pregnant, and the hormones are working for you in the right direction, we have some hormonal help. But usually we don't have hormonal help. So when we think about sex drive, it's actually the most complex entity we have, which is our brain. We have to work with our desire, which is how do you turn on the brain? And sometimes we have to figure out how do you turn off the turn-offs? What turns you off? You mentioned, you know, for instance, with new babies, sleep, fatigue, um, breastfeeding, all those pieces where you're like, oh my God, I am so tired. The last thing I want is sex. Biologically, that's true. Like our bodies are going through this experience because we're not made to actually procreate right away. And sleep is going to take usually a first you know, step over, over sex, especially for women. Because again, we don't have that testosterone in the same way to propel us forward. Right. Now, that doesn't mean that sometimes there's relationships where the woman has a higher sex drive than the man. And we're now, and I'm also just want to note that this is a heterosexual um, 
conversation we're having because sometimes it's a woman woman or man man right, right. relationship. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And of course, there's a desire discrepancy for couples like that as well. Right. All people, period, mm-hmm. have a different sex drive usually than their partner. And how we navigate that is important. Because if the sex drive is radically different, then we have a big desire discrepancy and we've got to figure out why. Right. So again, we come back to our largest sex organ, our brain, and go, what's happening here? Is there any illness or disease? Are we tired? Um, are our hormones off? Is our thyroid off? Do we have negative sex messages from childhood of origin religion society you know are we having relationship issues that's the biggest one that really cracks open most couples in terms of their sex drive you know one or the other goes you know i'm not happy in this relationship and it shows up in the bedroom or doesn't show up in the bedroom (laughs) right totally that's a great point well speaking of relationships then because you know yes your specialty is in sex therapy right Mm -hmm. everything related to sex and sexuality but you're a relationship therapist at heart Mm -hmm. you know it's kind of like a founding thing you have to be in order to do this yeah so could you give us could you if i ask you this Mm -hmm. tell me if you can answer it or if you need to modify what would you say three key factors are for couples to maintain a healthy long-term relationship it's a great question one is respect and you know, as your looks go out the window as you age, <laughs> happening to everyone. It, exactly. Mm-hmm. As long as you respect that person, that's a key aphrodisiac, in my opinion. So I think respect is key, and it's something we earn. It's not just given, you know, because we're in a relationship. We've got to earn it. And so you have to ask yourself, what am I doing to earn the respect of my spouse or my partner? I'm maybe I'm I'm optimizing my life for me and therefore my partner can look at me and go oh, i really respect that i mean that's how my husband and i look at it so respect is key for that long-term relationship i think transparency is another key one and that transparency comes with a lot of vulnerability and a lot of um clear clean communication again secrets can lead to the demise of relationships and i differentiate again between secrets and privacy we definitely have private moments you know we we poop in private (laughs) we like to close the door and have pooping in private for instance we need we want to keep a little bit of mystery alive in our relationship yep um but the transparency is key because then you know we don't get into trouble if we've agreed if we've agreed to even if we haven't but if we've agreed to a monogamous sexually exclusive relationship which most people do not all people but even if you don't i still think the transparency is absolutely key to make any relationship function however you've constructed it and then in terms of keeping it long term alive i come back to that desire deposit what do you as a couple need to do again and this is sort of piggybacks in number one to earn the desire of your spouse if you took full accountability to earn the desire of your spouse rather than blame them you don't desire me um you have a low sex drive or you have too high of a sex drive what if you said this is sex worth wanting and i'm going to earn that for my i'm going to earn that for myself I'm going to flirt more. I'm going to keep myself um, in shape. I'm going to go on more dates or do quality time. I'm going to make my love language deposits for my partner. I'm going to do these things to earn their desire so that I don't just expect that it's given to me. Yeah, these are great. Really, really cool stuff. I know I'm relating to all of them. (laughs) I'm sure everyone listening is too. 
So we, we, are, we have to wrap it up soon. I don't want to, but we're going to have to because we have lives to live and we've got <laughs> desire deposits to make. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> so what are we actually seeking through sex, through the act, the erotic connections? There's great studies that say that I, one study says, I think there's 110 reasons we have sex, but most of it, in my opinion, boils down to connection really just feeling connected to another validation it's a validation that you know we are the object of desire from our partner whether it's the partner for the night that you just met or it's your partner of 21 years it's actually fun to be the object of someone's desire when we take away all the yucky stuff around feeling objectified um so that connection i think that validation um a demonstration of love it is a physical release for a lot of people. Um, other reasons. I mean, a lot of people say orgasm is a reason, but I kind of tie that into the physical release. Mm-hmm. Um, well, on that note then, is is <laughs> sex something we need that we're required to live? I think so. I think what makes us human is that we're sexual beings. And what I mean by that is, and we come back to pleasure, because if you think about our anatomy, for instance, our clitoris with 8,000 nerve endings has no procreative purpose except for pleasure. And so if you think about that, some people don't even procreate for that matter. But if you do procreate, usually you only procreate a few times in your lifespan. All the other times that you have sex, it's for pleasure. And we orient towards pleasure, which means sex is A, for pleasure, and B, what, that's what makes us human, is that we're sexual beings. Great answer. It does make us human, doesn't it? Yeah. So, you know, I think, I think we've, got a, we've been almost 50 minutes. Can you believe that? It goes by fast. I know. <laughs> um, I'm going to ask you one more question before we do our final question. What's the most common question people ask you when they find out you're a sex therapist? Gosh, that's a great one. It's changed over the decade since I've started. Well, give like maybe what did they used to ask you? What do they ask you? So a decade ago when I started, I would, I would, you know, if I named that I was a sex therapist, people had no idea what that meant. And they would sort of joke, oh, I want to be your client. And I would say, I don't really think you do, because that means you probably struggle with something you don't want to be struggling with, like erectile dysfunction or premature ejaculation. So you really don't want to yeah. be my client. But there's this myth around what sex therapy is, right? It's it's therapy. It's talk therapy. I give people homework to go do at home, but nothing you know, erotic or X-rated happens in my office, and I certainly don't touch my clients. Um, and that's a very important, distinct boundary, because a lot of people don't know that. Um, so what do people ask me now when I'm a sex therapist? Often they'll ask, um, you know, top, top three things that come into the office. They'll ask me, what is sex therapy? What other people? Oh, they're probably, I'm, yeah, they're just curious. Yeah. You're sort of like an anomaly. Yeah. They don't quite know what to do with you. Right. How did you get into <laughs> it? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I think they hear sex therapy and, and honestly, I think the title is even misleading because it's not just helping people have better sex lives and having sex better, that is part of it, but it's also finding your sexuality. Like what does that sexual identity really mean? You know, I just we just had a conversation two minutes ago around 
being sexual beings. You know, being human also means that you are a sexual being. And when I say that to some clients, they're like, oh, I'm a sexual being. And their eyes kind of light up and they have this like surprise. I'm a sexual being. Y- yeah. And it's sort of like a duh at the same time as a, I never really actually realized that. Mm-hmm. And so finding that permission to be a sexual being and then figuring out what that means. Because, you, you know, let's come full circle back to parents who are trying to find their sex life together. A lot of it is how do you find your sexual identity when you're not mom or dad, when you're not working, when you're not just out in the world? Like, who are you as lover? And we never really actually put that to, oftentimes, we don't put that together and cultivate what is that identity. So that's part of our life path. Wow. That's a great, great answer. I actually just realized that you probably may feel a little extra pressure to be this amazing sexual being because (laughs) of what you do. (laughs) Like I feel not pressure, but like I was a pro athlete. So, Mm -hmm. you know, I've got to maintain a certain, you know, athletic demeanor, right? Yes. Um, Isn't that funny? Mm -hmm. Have you ever thought about that for yourself? Oh, I think I get that projection or assumption all the time. All the time. Hopefully not from your husband because he's also a sex therapist. Right. Oh, my gosh. Right. But that's why when I write my newsletters, for instance, mm-hmm. I like to personalize them. I yeah. say I'm the lower desire person in our relationship. I struggled in my pregnancies. I had pelvic floor pain with both my pregnancies. My sex drive went in the toilet with both my pregnancies. I had to refine that again. Like, I'm human. Yeah. I'm absolutely human. Totally. All right, well, let's go into the final question that I ask every guest. But wait one second. If people want to connect with you personally, are they going to go to, where are they going to go? Probably my website is easiest, which Mm -hmm. is theintimacyinstitute.org. Okay. Is usually what I say. Or you can email me. Right. And we will have links on the uh, page notes. So make sure you get over to NicoleDeBoom.com and find my podcast. It's easy. And then you'll look at episode 74 for Jenny Schuyler. You'll see all the links to connect with you. You are writing a book. Is that right? Or you have plans to write a book? We have our chapters and our title and we're trying to put together. Yeah, we're writing a book. <laughs> you, Who's we? Oh, my husband and I. Awesome. Yes. And uh, from what I recall, it has to do with one of the very first topics we talked about, which you said you could talk about till the cows come home, which is teaching parents how to help grow happy, sexually healthy kids. Is that right? That's part of it. Okay. It's also how do you have a healthy, happy sex life after you have kids. Perfect. And guess what? You've got experience there. Yeah. (laughs) All right. All right. So with that in mind here, um, we know where to find you. Mm -hmm. Now we're going to get to the final question, which is if you could give our listeners one final piece of advice, one Mm -hmm. nugget to help Mm -hmm. them run their worlds in a bigger and better way, what would it be? Optimize your own life. And what does that mean? Where do you want to be shining? How do you want to shine? I mean, if you were to be this resilient person in the world, what do you do for your brain, your body, your spirit, your emotions, your sexuality? How do you optimize all parts of your life so that you feel good in your body on this planet? Beautiful answer. Well, for me, 
operating this podcast helps me optimize my life because I get to interact with incredible visionaries and people making change in the world, and you are one of them. Oh, thank you. So thank you, Jenny, for coming on the show and for being open and tackling this uh, topic that you tackle every day, but that a lot of people have struggle to have conversations about. So mm-hmm. thank you so much. I know we're helping people just by having you on the show. Oh, and last thing, uh, this podcast will go up on Friday, November 10th. Exciting. You are coming to speak at Skirt Sports on Tuesday, November 14th. So if you are a local, come out because you are going to see Jenny live and in person, and it is going to be awesome. exciting all right thank you nicole well that was a fun episode wasn't it i'm so curious as to your biggest takeaways i will definitely be posting about this and anybody who wants to share their thoughts we're gonna we're gonna have a little post conversation here um for me as a mom of a five-year-old i'm really interested in anything that will help me raise a confident beautiful person Um, I can't wait for Jenny's book to come out that's all about teaching parents how to help grow happy, sexually healthy kids. I love it. Um, I also liked her three points about a healthy sexual life. And I'll repeat them for you in case you you need it here. Uh, Respect is the key aphrodisiac and we need to earn it. That's number one. Number two, transparency and vulnerability must be part of the the equation. In my opinion, they're probably the foundation. And number three, you gotta work on your desired deposits. They keep that connection alive so that there's not always a race to the finish line. Don't you love that? Gosh, we're so stuck on finish lines. It even hits the bedroom. Um, In the end, as Jenny says, it's all about optimizing your own life, asking where and how you want to shine in this world. And when you give yourself permission for pleasure, you open yourself up to a life of positivity. And that's what we're all striving for in the end. We know this. It's not that hard to do. We just have to stop and ask ourselves sometimes. Well, everyone, Thanks for tuning in today. If you want to reach Jenny Schuyler, check out the Intimacy Institute website. She has tons of content on the subject. You can connect with her directly through her business. Um, Links to all things Jenny Schuyler are in the show notes. I even dug up some old newspaper um, columns. She used to write a column for one of the Boulder newspapers that was hilarious and awesome. It was basically a sex column. All right, everyone, that's enough for today. You know what time it is. It's time to get out there and run this world. Have a great workout, and I'll see you next week.